Hello everyone, my name is Nick Cohen and welcome to The Bunker. Today I want to talk about something that annoys me very much. Lots of things annoy me very much, but this annoys me particularly. The crowbarring of contemporary concerns into history. You watch, I don't know, BBC adaptations of The War of the World and read second-rate historical novels and they're all ultra-liberal. Sentiments are bunged in there and it's not those sentiments are wrong, they just feel false and artificial and as if you're being manipulated. A writer who triumphantly avoids that is Laura Shepard-Robinson, who's with me in the studio. Greetings, Laura. Hello, and thanks very much for having me on. It's my pleasure. Her novels, if you haven't read them, Blood and Sugar and Daughters of the Night, are historical thrillers set in the late 18th century, before the French Revolution, before the anti-slavery movement, during the American War of Independence. And on the one hand, they are contemporary. They are about slavery. They are about prostitution in Georgian London. On the other hand, they feel real. They don't feel as if the reader is being conned or having a Sunday school teacher give them a little pious homily. Laura, do you look for aspects of what angers and revolts us about Georgian England when you pick your subjects? No, but I do try to focus on issues that I think still have great resonance today. And obviously, you know, my first novel dealt with slavery, well, we're still very much living with the ramifications of slavery. And we're revisiting that debate today. And the prostitution debate is extremely current as well. So as you say, I try very hard not to put a modern day sensibility into my books. But at the same time, I try to pick issues that will resonate. Yes, in Blood and Sugar on slavery. With that, at least you had the, and one of the most astonishing things, actually, in modern British history, the eruption from nowhere in the late 1780s of the anti-slavery mm-hmm. movement, often described as the first genuine single-issue political mm-hmm. campaign. Presumably that gave you material to work with. Absolutely, because, you know, I come from a political background myself and any kind of reading of the history of the abolition movement, it was actually quite incredible what those activists did to turn around public opinion. At a time when most people, you know, they rarely left their own village, let alone sort of necessarily thought about what was happening on the other side of the world. And they had the full power of the English state ranged against them. You know, there was a very powerful group of MPs in Parliament called the West India Lobby. Just as the anti-slavery movement was the first modern single-issue pressure group movement, the pro-slavery lobby was the first modern absolutely, corporate yeah. interest in you know, uh, fighting them. Yes, absolutely. And, and, and like completely shamelessly so as well. You know, many of them declared that their sole interest in becoming MPs in the first place was to defend the interests of slavery and those who practised it. And they fought an equally quite successful rearguard action against the abolitionists after they turned around public opinion. And slavery would probably have been abolished about 20 years before it did, were it not for the efforts of the West India lobby. But at the same time... Uh, led by the future William IV. That, I was pleased to note I was at an exhibition in Greenwich, Royal Portraits, and actually, and although, you know, one can go on about woke history and censoring and rewriting the past, I actually thought it was a genuine advance where they had a portrait of William IV, Abbas Emsonif, and a leader of the pro-slavery lobby. Yes, I mean, I think, you know, there's nothing wrong. In fact, you could argue it's well overdue to give Tell people the, the full facts. Yes, Tell the truth. Indeed. Yes, absolutely. 
Absolutely. But now, your latest novel, Daughters of the Night, is set in the London of brothels and prostitution. Here, was there a problem with source material in that all you've got is accounts by men? The really interesting thing is, is the answer to that is is a very big no, because although a lot of the sort of contemporary, you know, the letters in the newspapers, the newspaper columns, the histories written around that time were written by men, the fabulous thing about prostitution in Georgian England was that a certain proportion of the kind of higher end of prostitutes in Georgian London, they were the celebrities of their day and there was huge amounts written about them in the newspapers, usually, as you say, by men, but they also wrote their own memoirs and, you know, these, these autobiographies of these women and in their own words, you can read it and it's absolutely fascinating. And the great thing about it is, is that, you know, you've got to take them with a bit of a pinch of salt because like any autobiography, the subject is portraying themselves in the way they want to be perceived. But at the same time, that in itself is very eye-opening as to how these women wanted the world to look at them and what they did for a living. How were they celebrities? So... Although there were huge dangers facing women who went into prostitution, they also had huge advantages too, in the sense that they earned really quite good money. An average prostitute in Georgian London could earn five guineas a night. Now, that's what a housemaid would earn in a year, which is you know the most likely alternative occupation that that woman would be able to enter. There were vast riches to be had, comparatively speaking, for those women. But obviously, at the same time, as I said, they faced huge dangers. They faced disease and violence and the degrading nature of the work. But then they also would reach the age of sort of 30, 35, and their earnings would fall off a cliff. And so most prostitutes would earn a great deal of money, you know, in their 20s. And then most of them ended up dying in poverty, but not all of them. Some of them, very canny women, went into property speculation. They saved their money and... A large part of Hampstead is built on the earnings of prostitutes, which I quite like. And it's now full of Russian oligarchs. So, I mean, (laughs) the story continues. I don't want to put readers off reading by thinking they're getting a history book because, Mm. I mean, these are are thrillers. You've got your heroine Caroline in Daughters of the Night, who's a complicated character in a strange marriage. And through her, you get the other side of the prostitution world of the 1780s, of the danger to, in inverted commas, respectable women of having their reputation destroyed. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wanted to explore those double standards, you know, in a similar way to the prostitutes, and yet also a world away. Educated, rich women like Caroline had rather a lot of freedom, certainly more than you would expect if you're reading of history was, I don't know, sort of the kind of overly patriarchal society of the mid-19th century, say, that actually those women, you know, they often went into politics, In you know, not, not officially, they didn't become MPs, but they had salons and they campaigned for the political parties that they supported. And Caroline is definitely one of those quite modern-minded progressive women. And they had affairs. There was, depending on your husband's attitude, depending on the social circles you moved in, that women would also have affairs once they had done their duty of producing an heir. However, it was accepted up to a point if you did anything to publicly disgrace yourself or your husband then women could find themselves at the very sharp end of divorce cases and society could be pitiless in how they treated those women who transgressed. And 
you know, without wanting to give too much away, Caroline, as you say, she's in this strange marriage. It's not an overly happy marriage. And she does seek company elsewhere, should we say. It's very interesting what you said, because I have often thought that we are now in a kind of transition from a Georgian to a Victorian period. I noticed you said, you know, unlike in the Victorian period, women could be more rich, educated women. I mean, we must always remember that most women didn't have those advantages. Had kind of more freedom in the Georgian period than the Victorian. Do you, in a way, prefer the Georgian period for all its hypocrisy and grime and misery to the straight-laced moralistic Victorian period, which our age is starting to... I think you can overdo those distinctions and that there were always straight-laced, moralistic, paternalistic people in Georgian times and equally there were Indeed. liberal, progressive people in the 19th century. But yes, yes, I've, I love the Georgian period. I, You know, it's bawdy and it's quite savage, but it's also it's also deeply thoughtful as a society. This was a time when, when we were really turning our minds as a country to the great sort of philosophical underpinnings that underpin liberal democracies today. And for all the hypocrisies that existed then and now in some of that philosophy, they are still, to me anyway, an enormous step forward for for civilization and for, for our country. Indeed. And coming back on that, I started by saying I really dislike anachronism. I really dislike, you know, some twerp in BBC drama putting his or her opinions into mm-hmm. a classic novel. But when you look at the debate on prostitution in Georgia and England, is it so different from the debate now? No, it's it's practically identical. There's a religious flavour to it, which I don't think we have now in the same way. But all the sort of crucial parts of the debate, so whether we turn a blind eye to prostitution, whether we crack down on prostitution, whether we regulate prostitution, that was all being had as a debate at that time in the pages of magazines like the Gentleman's Magazine and, and the newspapers, and indeed occasionally in Parliament. And equally, whether we should punish women who were involved in prostitution or help them. That was another huge debate that was being had at that time. So, you know, one of the things I find fascinating about that is that in this book, I didn't have to make that sort of false choice, as you've described, about whether to put this contemporary debate in because it was a debate they were having then. And I found that really fascinating. Do you ever throw out research because you think, yes, this is all very well and I've done a lot of work analysing this section, but actually it doesn't fit into the novel? Yes, I mean, I think you've got to you've got to be quite disciplined because there's such a wealth of interesting nuggets of history out there, and you think, you know, I'm always writing them down and thinking, oh, I've got to find somewhere to put that in, but the story has to justify it, and so I I'm I'm quite strict. Although I love the research side and I get huge amounts of inspiration from it, I'm pretty strict with myself that the story has to be king. Can I ask a bit about your background? You worked for the Labour Party for a while, didn't you? I did, yes, that's right. What do you do? I worked in the General Secretary's office at the Labour Party, so I was an advisor there. And so that's like central office of the Labour Party. So it wasn't in Parliament, although I often went over to Parliament and to Number 10 because we were in government at at that time. What was it about working for the Labour Party that prepared you for a career (laughs) writing about lies, hypocrisy, murder, psychopaths, (laughs) torture, humiliation, libel and untimely death? Yes, quite. I think one of the interesting things about working in politics is you get to see a lot of power dynamics very close up. And again, I think that those those sorts of things are, are universal. And I write a lot about vested interests and powerful, in Georgian times, powerful men. And so 
yeah, I feel like I had quite a lot of life experience to draw on in writing about these. When you say power dynamics, examples, what what does that mean? Just I think the way that the subtle ways that vested interests can have of exerting themselves in the political system and with the media and the double standards that can exist within a political system. I mean, a whole raft of things, really. And, and, and also just how people, you know, just, just in, a, in a day-to-day experience of how politicians behave to one another and the way that power exerts itself just in one-to-one human interactions, which I, I always found quite fascinating, the way that different different politicians chose to exercise that in different ways. Either being to their colleagues and potential rivals, either being always polite and nice yeah, to yeah, them. Yeah. Or, or really thuggish and bullying and, right, and, and, and aggressive. Letting them know, you're my rival and I, 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 I'm yeah, on to you. Yeah, I mean, it was always fascinating to me that the vast range of difference within just like MPs in the Parliamentary Labour Party and the way that they conducted themselves. It was fascinating. It's interesting because the novel opens, this is not giving too much away, Laura, the novel opens with the murder of a beautiful woman in the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, which, alas, have long been destroyed. I know, and they would be so great for COVID times, I yeah, think. Yeah, can you explain what they were? Yes, yeah, sure. Sorry, so it's like 20 acres of gardens on in, in Vauxhall, on the banks of the River Thames, and they were sort of like a, I don't know, a cross between a theme park and a sort of very fancy outdoor dining venue and a sex club. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds amazing, doesn't it? Um, and... So people would go there and they were a great leveller, the the pleasure gardens, in that the entrance price itself wasn't particularly expensive. So anyone with a kind of half decent job could go along. But so did the Prince of Wales and the the Dukes and Duchesses, the absolute cream of society. And that was part of the attraction was that ordinary people could go and ogle at these celebrities and people like Handel and Hogarth would go there and and, and, and you could could celebrity spot. But you could also, the food and drink was astronomical priced and everyone moaned about it the entire time but you could dine out under the stars and there would be dancing there would be art exhibitions circus tents you know stalls all that kind of stuff and you could go there and you could pick up a prostitute or if you were a young woman in a unhappy marriage who was a bit bored you could probably go and find yourself a lover there and then they would slope off down to the bowers at the bottom of the Vauxhall Gardens where it was all the dark walk it was called which was maintained for that purpose precisely for that purpose the the owners of the of the gardens had this this sort of you know typical piece of hypocrisy on the one hand they were like you know no no we absolutely deplore this sort of thing I mean it's got no place at Vauxhall kind of publicly but then privately they would maintain this dark walk and make sure that the lamps weren't lit down there because they knew that a huge part of their revenue was coming from people who went to Vauxhall to do just that yes absolutely again without giving too much away a beautiful young woman is murdered in the opening scene and to go back to your experience of politics and vested interests. The magistrate decides because, and again, this is not giving too much away, mm-hmm. she's a prostitute, that he's not concerned, he's not going to investigate. And if, if he did investigate, there wouldn't be a novel, obviously. Yes. But um, <laughs> that decision of society to just say, well, she's a person of no mm-hmm. concern, a vested interest, did that build from your observation of politics today? I mean, yes, you you see it all the time, don't you? When, you know, I remember that awful case of there was a serial killer in Ipswich who was targeting prostitutes. That's right, yeah. And a lot of the messaging at the time, and I understand why they were doing it because they were trying to reassure because it was quite a frightening time for women in Ipswich. But the messaging was, 
he's only targeting prostitutes. Almost as though that was a different kind of level of crime. And I think a lot of the language, I think we're getting better. But yes, I think, I think a, so too. A, lot, a lot of the language that, that has been used, you know, if you look at like the, the Yorkshire Ripper case, I mean, it was shocking the way that mm. they talked about the victims in those crimes. And so, yeah, to me, it was it was all too likely and real that that, that would be how the magistrate would, would treat a crime like that. It's difficult to talk about because one is in danger of diminishing the suffering of the relatives of people who have died. Mm. But it's it remains interesting how some murder victims become huge and the investigation receives vast coverage and others, you barely know their names. Completely. One of the things that was really important to me in in Daughters of Night was that the victims lived as powerfully as the characters who were still alive. And I made a decision to put a backstory into Daughters of Night, which is told through the eyes of a, of a very young woman sort of on the cusp of entering prostitution and through her eyes we kind of see that world firsthand because I in my first draft I didn't have that and I felt it was it it, it lacked that yes. three-dimensional focus and on the victims which it really needed I felt. I thought that section worked very well. Are you continuing because you have got now the same characters or some of the same characters mm. doing two novels are, are you going to continue are you going to turn two books into a trilogy? I'm actually I'm writing a Another historical novel that isn't a part of the Harry and Caro world, which is, it's sort of more a mystery than a straight crime novel. And it's kind of about, it's partly about fortune telling and kind of the ideas of the Enlightenment coming up against the old superstitions. But it's also about kind of myth and belief and, you know, human stories that we tell ourselves. And when's it set? It's set about 40 years earlier than my first two books. So it's set in 1740, which is kind of at a time of sort of slight national panic about the Jacobites and a time where politicians are trying to liberalise the laws against various different religions and, and not getting very far. It's just a fascinating time. 1740s, forgive me, but is that when witchcraft is finally being Yes, yeah, so, so in 1735, there's a really kind of defining bit of legislation which a lot of people think of as as the the sort of real beginning of the Enlightenment, which is when they repeal the old witchcraft laws. And those witchcraft laws said that witches existed and should be killed for being witches. Whereas the new laws said people practising witchcraft, whether it be fortune telling or casting spells, or that, that those people are fraudsters and should be punished as fraudsters, right. rather than people who possessed diabolical powers. So no difference in the way from people playing the free card Exactly, exactly, yes. And so, you know, my main character, who is herself a young fortune teller, although, you know, one of the questions the book asked is, is she clairvoyant or is she a fraudster? I, I, I won't give too much away. No, no, no. She, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm grateful you're talking about it all. A lot of writers don't <laughs> like talking about a book until it's out. To go back to the world of fortune telling and uh, pre-enlightenment superstition, they think it's bad luck. Oh, An ill omen. That, uh, no, you haven't. Of course you haven't. Got, uh, of course you haven't. Are you going to return? Because I think a lot of your readers, I mean, I mean, your books have had 
are, are very well read, win all kinds of awards. I think a lot of your readers want to know what's going to I know, and I Karen. certainly wouldn't rule out returning You know, it's like, it's yeah, like yeah, J.K. Yeah. Rowling <laughs> stopping Harry Potter and going off and writing You sound about, like my editor. <laughs> and, you know, and, and writing a sci-fi novel. You know, this is, it's not going to do. No, I, I, I would hope to return to, to Harry and Carrie because, as you say, I think I'm, I might get some angry letters from readers if I because I did leave Carrie on something of a cliffhanger at the end of the, the last book. I really do think listeners would like to read these books because I don't want to get, I don't want to give it too much away. But one way again, there's modern sensibility in the book without it feeling fake and manipulative is the marriage between, mm. if you like, the hero and the heroine is unhappy, cold at times. What made you write that? What advantages are there to you as a writer in, 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 in setting it up that way? So Blood and Sugar, Harry was my main character. Daughters of Night, his wife, Caro, was my main character. I didn't really want to write a straight series and I loved the idea of being able to kind of show this marriage from the two different sides rather than just getting one person's story. Caro, I think, comes across as as quite a cold, distant character in Blood and Sugar. But then I wanted, you know, I... I thought actually she's a character that's that's much deeper than that. And whilst I tried to give hints of that in Blood and Sugar, I, I loved the idea of giving her a novel of her own. And I think that the the failure of of the or the failings of their marriage, it's quite fertile ground to pursue in terms of well, for a start, their own extramarital activity, but also the emotional toll that being in a marriage like that at a time when divorce was very difficult, even if you were rich, I thought that that exploring that territory would be would be very interesting for the reader. Do you think as well that there's an advantage in most readers, and I include myself in this, I'm not trying to pretend I'm, I'm, I'm more sophisticated than I, <laughs> than I am, expect, you know, the lead man, the lead woman, to end up together and happy at the end of a novel. And are there advantages in just not? Do you think that's always true there? I mean, I, like, I absolutely love the George Smiley books by John le Carré. Yeah. And that, I think, is just a wonderful depiction of a terrible dysfunctional marriage. And actually, the act of leaving that marriage in the end for George Smiley is an enormous act of liberation for him. Although plenty has been written about the complexities of that marriage, so some people would probably disagree with me. But No, no, no. And, all, and also, uh, Le Carre can use it, the betrayals mm. in the marriage, to mirror absolutely the, the, yeah. the, 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 the betrayals in the state and it works brilliantly and of course and of course you remember that relationship between George and Anne yeah. far more than you remember a thousand, a yeah, thousand yeah, books yeah. you've read yeah. in which the hero and heroine walk, walk up, up the, the aisle and live, yeah, and, live yeah, yeah. and live happily ever after even though and again that is perhaps not as true to life as one would hope right well Laura it's been wonderful having you in your, your next book is going to be called what? It's called The Square of Sevens. And any publication date? It won't be out until next year, I'm afraid. It was summer 23. Well, I certainly will be reading it. Before we go, we now have to go into our extended commercial break, which is to say, you've been listening to The Bunker. If you like us, can you please give us a five-star or even a written review on Spotify, Apple, Android, whatever your podcast dispenser of choice is if you want to subscribe to our patreon page that would be great there's bunkers every day monday to friday culture politics commentary that's it i think we're done i think i've advertised everything i need to advertise all it remains for me to do is to thank laura very much for being our guest thank you very much for having me on and thank you for listening 
Daily was presented by Nick Cohen. The producers were Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofronievich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis. And the audio producer was me, Jay Bailey. Group editor Andrew Harrison. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.